This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Danielle Price. Do you feel like the news is worse and worse every day? And do you find yourself avoiding it more and more as a result? You're not the only one. 2022 data from the Reuters Institute shows that 40% of Americans sometimes or often purposely avoid the news. That proportion has gone up over the last five years, which is a trend seen across all countries surveyed. People gave a lot of reasons for avoiding the news, but around a third said it makes them feel worn out and then it brings down their mood. It always seems like so much to process. How can we find some kind of peaceful place with the very real distress that we feel from these very real problems without tuning out altogether? On this edition of Peace Talks Radio, correspondent Danielle Price explores anxiety around the news with three guests who talk about how it may not be the content of the news that's bringing us down as much as how it's delivered. We'll also hear their thoughts about what we can do about it. We'll hear from Dr. Dana Rose Garfin, Assistant Professor of Community Health Sciences at UCLA. With other researchers, Dr. Garfin has looked into how repeated media coverage of crises can cause anxiety and PTSD symptoms and even cardiovascular symptoms. Dr. Garfin's research has looked at effects of media coverage on disasters like the 9-11 attacks and the Boston Marathon bombings. We'll also be hearing from Janelle Johnson Phillips, Western Region Manager for Solutions Journalism Network, a network of news organizations and journalists that promote solutions-based journalism. Solutions journalism focuses on how people solve the problems that we see reported on so often. But first, we'll hear from Eric Deggins, a media critic with National Public Radio. Deggins is NPR's first full-time TV critic and has long covered issues involving race in media. Deggins sees a dangerous shift in media over the last dozen years, particularly in cable news, sowing fear and panic among viewers just to keep them engaged. But Deggins thinks we have more control over our media than we may realize or take responsibility for. Here's Eric Deggins with our correspondent, Danielle Price. Like we're in a media ecosystem where the viewers have more power than they've ever had. Uh, individual people have the ability to see something on television or experience something on social media and then broadcast their own thoughts about it with no editor or no gatekeeper. And then that thought can be picked up by other people if they think it's significant and it can become a major talking point for the nation or for the world. I think that power sort of requires the audience to be more careful about what it patronizes and to be more rigorous about what it takes in and what it supports. You know, if Fox News didn't make money doing what it what it does, uh, it wouldn't do it. Even though, um, you know, I'm quite sure that Rupert Murdoch and some of his family are ideologically friendly to conservative ideas, they wouldn't be supporting such a extremist partisan news network if it wasn't making a ton of money. And it wouldn't be making a ton of money if there weren't a ton of people watching it and tolerating the misinformation and disinformation that they surely know they're being fed. And so at, at, at some point, it's on the citizen. It's on the, the, the viewer. It's on the audience member to stand up for democracy and stand up for press freedom and stand up 
for the truth and reject messages that are obviously fraudulent. Eric Deggins, in so many ways, 2020 was a year of just doom and gloom in the news, and the news cycle hasn't seemed to have let up all that much. Is it just that the news really is worse than it has been at previous points in history, or are other things going on here too? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I'd say we're, we have some singular events, of course, you know, the pandemic and its ongoing effects, the radicalization of one of America's major political parties, the attempt by a president who lost a fair election to try and overthrow those results, and the support that that president got uh, from uh, areas of media, uh, areas of Congress, areas of politics. We're still grappling with that. So there's a lot of things about this time that are, I think, singularly uh, disturbing. But we also live in a media culture that thrives on bringing all of this to your doorstep or to your phone or to your tablet or to your television set in a way um, that we haven't seen before. So while we're also living in a time where there have been some singular, singularly troubling events, we also live in a media culture that constantly bring this, brings this stuff to your doorstep every day, every minute of every day. And, and so we're, we're more impacted by it. You know, we're more aware of it. I think uh, one of the things that strikes me about, say, a media consumer in the 1960s, you know, you'd watch the evening news, you'd read the newspaper, but you didn't have a constant barrage of news updates telling you about the worst things that were happening in the world at that moment all the time. And that's what we have now. And I don't think we have fully realized or grappled with the implications of that and what it does to people, how it traumatizes them and how it changes their perception of the world, that changes their perception of the news. It changes their perception of society and the world. We haven't begun to grapple with those questions. I mean, I'm a news junkie. I love Twitter. And even I feel sometimes like I just want to scroll past some things and just like not engage in upsetting news all the time. But as individuals, like, is it wrong to do this? You know, if someone feels that their mental health is affected, is it okay sometimes to just say, I don't want to know right now? Oh, you absolutely have to uh, consume media responsibly and intentionally. You absolutely have to do that. Cable news in particular, and I think when people talk about media, there's this weird dynamic where what they really mean is cable TV news, because when it comes to journalism, like that's the thing that symbolizes quote unquote media for them. That's the thing that's on in the airport. It's on in the dentist office. It's on when you're waiting online at the DMV, you know, it, 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 it comes to symbolize um, the whole structure of media, even though media platforms often operate very differently. And the way cable TV news works is that it is constantly trying to engage you. And the way it constantly tries to engage you is by using conflict and by using fear to get you to pay attention. So when you put on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC in the background while you're at work or while you're in the waiting room for some office, you're getting this constant barrage of fear and conflict. 
that you don't even realize is agitating you. And then, uh, you know, you get to the end of the day and you feel like crap about how the world is and you don't really understand it's because you've been getting this constant barrage of messaging that has been trying to engage your attention by pushing your buttons about fear and pushing your buttons about conflict and pushing your buttons about anger through the whole day. And so, uh, you know, I was constantly telling people when the pandemic was first kicking off and people, you know, were glued to the TV set to find out about, you know, the latest iteration of how things were going in New York or how things were going wherever, you know, I, w- I was just constantly saying, you know, dip in until you know, until you feel like you know what's going on and then stop watching it because it's damaging and you have to learn to limit your exposure to um, that kind of agitation. Otherwise, you'll walk around sort of depressed about the state of the world and you won't understand why you feel that way. And and the other thing I constantly tell people is that if you think back in history, if you think back to think back to the 1960s, in the 1960s, we had the Bay of Pigs invasion. You know, we almost had nuclear war with the Soviet Union. We had the assassination of a president. We had the assassination of a major civil rights leader in Martin Luther King Jr. We had the assassination of another major civil rights leader in Malcolm X. We had the assassination of RFK when he was running for president. And we had the Vietnam War going on. And we had riots in American cities over civil rights issues. All of that was happening in the 1960s. And as bad as things are for us today, we, we have not had four major American figures in politics and civil rights killed within 10 years of each other. There have been points in America where the news, the daily news has been much worse. It's been much more calamitous. It seemed much more like America was about to go off the rails. But the nation didn't have this pervasive sense that everything was, you know, declining the way it does now because we didn't have this 24-7 news and media structure constantly bringing the worst of what was happening in the day to our doorstep every day. And so, um, I, you know, I find it, I find it troubling and surprising that people are looking at what's happening now and they're like, oh my God, it's never been worse. And I'm like, really? Do you, you know, I mean, that's the other thing. We, we have this media that's delivering all this material to us. And then we have, um, we have an American public that is ignorant of history. You know, some of this is a matter of perspective and some of this is a matter of understanding history. And some of this is a matter of grappling with the effect of our media structure on us and and the ways in which it's a, it's encouraging America to kind of eat itself in a way that is horrifying. And people need to understand what's happening and they need to take some personal run, responsibility in, 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 in managing their own media intake and also you know, being a good example for others. Because the other thing that happens in our media structure is that, you know, behavior begets other behavior, right? If a lot of people, you know, rush to talk about something, then other people will rush to find out about that something because they know all these people are talking about it and they want to find out what's going on. So you have a bunch of people who decide to model good media behavior, good media consumption, good media publication in, in terms of how they what they put on Instagram and what the, how they act, interact with people on, on, on Twitter and Snapchat and things like that, you know, that can be beget good behavior too. But it, 
you know, we're, we're reaching a point where, you know, we can't count on the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jeff Bezoses to do this. We have to do it. You know, we have to do it. Joining us today on Peace Talks Radio is NPR media critic Eric Deggins. Eric Deggins, you mentioned CNN, and CNN recently announced that they were going to cut down on overusing breaking news. Is there a shift happening in traditional media? Is there something that uh, is on the horizon? Well, it's interesting. So I know Chris Lick, um, the new president of CNN. Um, I met him when he was the executive producer of CBS This Morning. I got to know him a little better when he was the executive producer and showrunner for um, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And I caught up with him um, after the White House Correspondents' Dinner this year and talked to him for a little bit about what he had planned for CNN. And I, I can't quote that because I promised him it would be um, off the record. But it, what he told me was completely in line with the way that he's conducted himself the whole time I've known him which is that, you know, he's somebody who believes that quality journalism can also draw viewers. And, and his goal is to figure out a way to offer a news product that is journalistically consistent and high quality, but is also a, a magnet for viewers that also is that people want to watch. And, you know, CNN in particular, but all cable news outlets from one degree or another, have adopted these practices for how they present material that is cynical, somewhat cynical to me. And the idea is that we know this stuff is terrible journalistically, but we're doing it because that's how you get viewers, you know? And and in particular, Jeff Zucker came to CNN, the, the guy who preceded Chris Licht. He came to CNN at a time when Fox News was in its ascendancy and it was posting these monster ratings and it was it was crushing CNN's programming. And the problem, the, the challenge that news outlets face, uh, particularly uh, a more traditional outlet like CNN was when Jeff Zucker came to it, is that when the news isn't um, full of things that hold people's attention, then it is hard to get people to watch the channel, which kind of makes sense. If you have a news channel that's mostly devoted to reporting the news of the day, when the news of the day is boring, then the channel is boring and people don't watch it. And Fox News figured out, A, they didn't have the money to replicate um, the really extensive reporting network that CNN has. So they decided to fight CNN and other cable news outlets uh, with opinion. You know, so so when news when when the news is boring, people still wanted to hear what Bill O'Reilly thought of uh, the issue of the day uh, or these days. You know, uh, Fox's audience still wants to hear what Tucker Carlson has to say about what's going on. And that's a more consistent and steady and, to, and dependable source of ratings. So then Jeff Zucker comes to CNN and um, this is just my analysis, just my interpretation of what I thought he did. But I think what he did was he came to CNN and he said, OK, number one, we're going to focus on a very narrow band of stories and we're going to talk about those stories all day. So we'll talk about three or four or five, maybe six stories, probably four or five stories 
um, that we will talk about, you know, during the whole broadcast day. So even though we're a 24-hour news network, theoretically, um, and we're supposed to be bringing you the world, um, we are really only going to talk about the top three or four or five stories that we know our audience cares about. And then occasionally we'll stick in a, um, you know, an enterprise report from CNN International that will talk about something else. But for the most part, that's what we're going to do. Then we're also going to amp up the conflict and the sense of urgency. So we're, you know, every iteration, every, you know, small progression in a news story is going to get the breaking news tag. And, and so um, in, any permutation in the story, breaking news, breaking news, breaking news, even if it's something that isn't necessarily um, that, you know, defined as sort of, you got to know about this breaking news. We're going to put that tag on it because it, it amps up the urgency and it makes you feel like you have to pay attention. And, and, and if, you're, if your attention's kind of wandering from the screen, you know, that, that music comes up and, you know, that authoritative blitzer voice comes on and says, breaking news, and it reengages your, your attention again. And so now the question is, um, with Chris taking over and kind of dismantling that approach, and saying, you know, we're only going to use the breaking news tab when it seems like it's actually breaking news. And we're going to report on a wider range of stories. And we're going to amp down the partisan commentary. Um, I mean, that's all great for journalism. But what will that do to the ratings? And will people pay attention to CNN anymore without um, all of that stuff that they were doing? Uh, to try and, and, and attract people and hold on to them. It's kind of interesting, too, because I feel like, I mean, even, you know, breaking news, push notifications from like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the traditional print media um, are starting to use that um, method a lot more as well. And I wonder, you know, if CNN is able to successfully shift how that is going to impact the media landscape at large. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I don't think the changes that CNN is doing um, are going to have a lot of impact on what the New York Times does, at least not in the short term. If it's effective over a longer period of time, then it may inspire other people uh, to try and, and, and duplicate what they're doing, because that, that's always what happens. But, you know, the challenge for um, media outlets is to, is you know, it's an attention economy now. Everybody is competing for the audience's attention breaking into the consumer's media ecology and getting them to make you a part of their regular information habit in the same way that uh, McDonald's might want to get consumers to regularly stop by and have lunch. So they have a bunch of uh, locations everywhere. So they're always close to where you work and they have uh, a menu that's the same from, from restaurant to restaurant. You know exactly where you're going to get when you go to a McDonald's. So wherever you are, if you decide that's what you want, you can depend on getting it the way that you remember it. So that's, you know, that's what's happening now with, with, with news and information. And I don't know that that's a, that that's a bad thing. I, I think that what, what that's about is giving the consumer as much control and as much information, as much access as they want. But the, the overall impact of, you know, signing up for alerts from the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN and NPR and Fox News and on and on and on means that, you know, in any given day, 
an average news consumer is inundated with notifications. And again, these are notifications that tell you about the sort of the most extreme things that are happening in the world. So you're constantly getting all this information about, you know, shootings and natural disasters and, um, you know, calamities and, you know, political problems. And, you know, the news is not filled with, you know, here's, here's, here's the, 50,000 planes that landed safely today. Right, (laughs) right. You know, what is news is the one that maybe didn't. Thank you, Eric Deggins. Is there anything else you wanted to add before uh, we turn off? I mean, one of the things that I think people want is they they want a quick solution and they want a quick solution that can be implemented by, um, you know, a decisive leader or a, a company changing what it does or an industry deciding to change. And, you know, that's not, I, I don't think that's what's going to solve a lot of our problems with media. What's going to solve a lot of our problems with media is if the audience changes. Um, the, the audience has to stop responding to some of these things um, that media does and, po- and politicians do to galvanize support and galvanize audiences. Um, people have to choose to reject that stuff. Thank you so much. This was a a really good conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time today. That was NPR media critic Eric Deggins. And you can hear Danielle Price's entire interview with Deggins at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Up next, we'll hear how repeated media exposure to distressing events can affect not just our emotional, but also our physical health. Dr. Dana Rose Garfin, up in a moment after this short break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Danielle Price. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. When events like September 11th or the Boston Marathon bombings happen, the direct victims and their loved ones aren't the only ones affected. We're all impacted to some extent by collective trauma. But our next guest says obsessively following news coverage of these events can really increase the likelihood of having post-traumatic stress symptoms yourself and even cardiovascular symptoms. Psychologist Dr. Dana Rose Garfin and colleagues found that repeated exposure to traumatic events through news coverage can actually cause more stress than being directly involved in the event. We'll hear Dr. Garfin talking with our correspondent, Daniel Price. All right, so the research that my colleagues and I have been doing has explored the relationship between 
uh, media exposure to collective trauma. And when we think of collective trauma, we can think of large scale events that impact the populace broadly through both direct means as well as indirect means, which is if you knew someone that was close to the event or through the media. And we have found in a series of studies that media exposure is a particularly potent predictor of distress symptoms. And that includes symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And importantly, that's symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, not necessarily post-traumatic stress disorder. We've also found that exposure associated with symptoms of anxiety and depression. And media exposure has also been associated with long-term physical health ailments, such as increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And could you talk a bit specifically about the research that you and your colleagues conducted um, on Americans' reactions to the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings? Yes. So in the study of the Boston Marathon bombings, we assessed people who lived in Boston, who lived in New York, because those folks had many of them been exposed to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, as well as people from across the United States. And what we found was that individuals who were exposed to high levels of media coverage of the Boston Marathon bombings exhibited higher levels of acute stress disorder. And acute stress can be thought of as early symptoms of post-traumatic stress. So the symptoms are very similar. You have re-experiencing symptoms. You might have memories of the event, flashbacks, nightmares, and so forth. Even people who had only been exposed through the media, if they had experienced extremely high levels of media exposure, some of them reported higher distress than even people who were at the event. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I I wouldn't have thought that that would have been the case. It seems very counterintuitive. It does. But when you think about it from a neurobiological perspective, it can make sense. So when you're watching media coverage of an event, you're seeing that over and over and over again. So it's really becoming embedded in the neurobiology of the brain. If you were perhaps near an event or you knew someone at the event, you were really only, you could have only been exposed to it, you know, at that time. And it allows the brain and the body to have a natural recovery process. Um, you know, because a lot of times people will experience, you know, heightened distress while something's happening or in the immediate aftermath. But, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we need to be able to go on with life and adapt. And, and, you know, most people are quite resilient even after traumatic events. However, when you're exposed to something over and over and over again, it can really become uh, biologically embedded in your neurological circuitry. And in that way, it can be extremely reinforcing. So we have a sense that the news is really terrible right now. And many of us might feel like it's worse than it's ever been before. Um, media critics might tell us otherwise. But is there evidence that Americans are having greater negative psychological impacts from the news than at other points in history? So I don't necessarily think that that particular study has been done because you would need to have been following people and specifically about media exposure for decades. However, what we do know is that particularly during the pandemic, media exposure increased. 
Um, and we know that that occurred for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, we just have changed as a society. So what you used to watch for a half hour on the evening news, now you're being exposed to all day, every day, and potentially on different modes of media. So you might have your phone on, that's giving you alerts, you're working, and then you you know, check social media or check your favorite, you know, news website. So you're just being exposed to more of it um, throughout the day and throughout the week. And that was, you know, escalated during the pandemic because people wanted to know information about it. It was a new event. So there's theories um, in, you know, like media dependency theory, which basically means that during times of crisis, people depend on the media more <laughs> to know what's going on. Um, and then people were at home more. So they just simply had more time. We became more reliant on technology. So we have that phenomenon. And then we also had the phenomenon of increased distress. And this was a particularly big problem in younger individuals. And there's been a lot of research that shows that you know high levels of media exposure, particularly social media exposure in young people is associated with distress. So you know, we know that there's more media exposure now and we know that there's more distress now. You know, we don't necessarily have a causal relationship between those two factors, but, you know, we can infer from those correlations that that could be a trigger. Okay. Dr. Dana Rose Garfin, can we talk about doom scrolling? So I'm very guilty of this. I actually remember very specifically the Boston Marathon bombings because I remember that was the first time that I was really consuming news on Twitter and I was just feeding off it so hard that I was, you know, looking for the updates constantly. That was the first time I'd followed a news story in that way. Is it really all that bad? <laughs> you know, if I don't notice that I feel bad after a doom scrolling session, am I in the clear or am I storing up stress and anxiety that I don't realize? So there's a lot of variability between people, right? So, I mean, some people are just naturally more resilient to stress and some people are naturally more susceptible to negative physical and mental health outcomes from stress exposure. This can also relate to other things that are going on in one's life or things that had happened in the past, right? So if your life's going pretty well and you're following a news story, you might not be as distressed by it. If you are experiencing a lot of personal stress, perhaps related to something like the pandemic or know a divorce or you're in a relationship with a lot of interpersonal violence or you're having financial struggles or other types of things in your life, you might be more susceptible to negative impacts of doom scrolling for the media. So, you know, there's just a lot of variability that occurs, you know, within someone's life and just kind of dispositionally, you know, however, we do know that on average, over time, when people are exposed to more media coverage of an event, they tend to exhibit more distress. We would kind of recommend that people limit their doom scrolling, also knowing that it is designed to be addictive, right? So people design these apps, they design these websites to keep people engaged. So, you know, once you get involved in reading about something, it can be really hard to turn it off. You know, you get updates on your phone, your phone dings, you go to check a text message, it's a news update. And it's a news update about a story that you're interested in and that you've been following. So it, it can make it really hard to pull back from that. 
And on the flip side of that, so again, I'm a news junkie and and I really do enjoy following the news very intensely. And even I feel lately, like sometimes I just want to scroll past some things and not engage in upsetting news all the time. Is it wrong to do that? I mean, isn't it kind of a luxury to be able to ignore the news? Well, I think there's a pretty big difference between repeated exposure to disturbing news coverage of an event and staying informed about what's going on in the world. You know, we also know from research that my colleagues and I have done that repeated exposure to disturbing images of an event is also associated with higher distress responses. So it's not just how much media you're consuming, but it's what you're consuming. You know, and you can think of does watching that same horrifying image of the pregnant woman, you know, who ultimately died being carried away from the hospital in the Ukraine during the Russia-Ukraine war. I mean, does that really provide you any new information by watching that image over and over again? You know, there's certainly other ways to educate oneself and stay informed about, you know, a geopolitical crisis, what's going on, the history behind it. Um, If someone's really interested in learning about that, that could serve to help inform you more without necessarily being more psychologically distressing and potentially creating negative impacts on your physical and mental health over time. Today on Peace Talks Radio, our guest is Dr. Dana Rose Garfin, Assistant Professor of Community Health Sciences at UCLA. So Dr. Garfin, are there healthier or better ways to consume news? You mentioned that um, images, graphic images might have a, a stronger impact. Are there other ways that the average person should try to change their news consumption habits to protect their uh, psychological well-being? Yeah, so and this this could be a little bit of a controversial thing to say, but I think it's really important where people are getting their news from as well, you know, to try to find news reporting that is perhaps not as sensationalized, you know, not as angry of a tone, um, and, you know, not necessarily showing disturbing images over and over and over again. So again, I think there's a lot of ways to learn about what's going on in the world besides sensationalized and distressing media coverage of an event. So, you know, trying to pick sources that, you know, are not as sensationalized, are not as likely to expose you to disturbing images of an event, as well as mindfully limiting your time, right? So, you know, we, you could think, you know, what did people used to do 30 years ago? They watched the evening news for a half an hour or they read the paper in the morning. So going back to that time and saying, you know, I'm going to read the news for 20 minutes in the morning or I'm going to listen to one podcast a day on my way to work or I'm going to listen to NPR on the way to work and that's it. I think that that really could help people because, again, when in our research, we didn't necessarily find that low levels of media exposure had the same effect as high levels. So, you know, certainly we even found that people who watched just half an hour, an hour or so forth, they they really weren't as distressed as these people that were watching hours and hours and hours of coverage. So I think both limiting your time and judiciously choosing what you expose yourself to could serve to help you stay informed without these negative physical and mental health impacts that we have seen. Is there anything that I missed or anything else that you wanted to add? Well, you know, what's really interesting is also where you're getting your news media from can have an impact on what you do with that information. So um, 
my colleagues and I showed that people, for example, who were getting their news from traditional media sources during the COVID-19 pandemic were more likely to take protective behaviors than people who were getting their news from social media. And we also found that this finding replicated when you're thinking about hurricane preparation behaviors. So if you're getting your news from traditional media sources, you're more likely to take protective action to protect yourself from a threat than if you're getting more of your news from social media. And do we know why that is? Is it that the information is You know, better. that study, it, we didn't necessarily look at the content of what people were exposed to. We just looked at the source. Um, you know, I you could theorize that on social media, people are getting a lot more conflicting information. And research that my colleagues and I did in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic showed that conflicting information in particular was more distressing. You know, when people are getting different types of information, telling them different things to do or not do, um, that could create more distress and also make it less likely that they're going to take protective actions um, that could improve their health and well-being. Hmm. I feel like that was um, uh, something that you heard people discussing a lot during the pandemic also. Um, you know, that they, they just didn't really know what to do because there was so much information out there and it seemed to be changing every day. And it seems like also that did depend quite a lot on where the information was coming from. And if, you know, if it was information coming from the CDC versus what people were seeing on Facebook, there was a very big difference. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's a, that's definitely a big problem that we're going to have to tackle in society because we are going to be exposed to increasing threats all the time. You know, we are having more, you know, mass shootings than ever before. The escalating climate crisis is going to increase the intensity and frequency of a lot of natural disasters. So, you know, I think there's even work out there that because of climate change, you know, we are probably going to be exposed to more pandemics in the coming years. So certainly, you know, how to message to folks without causing more distress and encouraging those protective behaviors is going to be extremely important. Yeah, because I feel like also, you know, even uh, in media that is is not sensationalized and is fairly straightforward reporting, when the news itself is just quite distressing, it, it's, you know, it, it seems that it's going to have an impact regardless. I would really encourage people to check in with themselves, um, sort of like what you were saying, and see how they're feeling after they watch the news and, you know, to choose wisely about where they're getting their information from, what they're being exposed to, and, you know, also to take time for self-care during these times of uncertainty and social upheaval. Thank you so much, Dr. Garfin. It was really great to speak with you today. I really appreciate you taking the time. You can find links to Dr. Garfin's research at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also hear Daniel Price's full extended interview with Garfin, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, we'll hear about a journalism organization that's trying to change how news is reported to focus less on the problems and more on the solutions, all after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Danielle Price. And today she's exploring how we respond to what can feel like increasingly bad news delivered over the media. Next, it's Janelle Johnson Phillips, who manages the Western Region for Solutions Journalism Network. Johnson Phillips works with newsrooms and journalists in Arizona, California, Hawaii, Nevada, and New Mexico on reporting that focuses on solutions to social problems. She's talking with our correspondent, Danielle Price. Janelle Johnson Phillips, what is solutions journalism? That's a great question. So solutions journalism is a way of reporting that looks at responses to social issues, not just the social issue itself, not just the problem. So it actually looks at the way that whether it's people um, in, in their own communities or cities, states have gone about trying to fix a problem in their community. And you said it's it's about people in their own communities. So is it more rooted in local journalism? I would say that it can be rooted in local journalism. It's not always local journalism. We want solutions journalism to reach everybody. And when we talk about solutions journalism and we're talking about, you know, how do you report on these responses to social issues. And we're talking about four, you need four pillars in order to do that. So you need to actually look at that response. You need to look at the evidence. You need to look at the insights. And you need to also look at the limitations because there are no perfect solutions. There's always going to be a catch, so to speak, in terms of, you know, maybe there isn't enough funding or maybe this solution only helps, you know, a three mile radius of people, for instance, maybe there's some sort of time constraint on it. So we know that while the solutions to these social issues are great, they are not the end all be all sometimes. And is this a new concept? How did it come about? Well, Solution Journalism Network has been around since 2013, but we are very upfront about the fact that we did not invent solutions journalism. Um, Solutions journalism um, or stories that focus on solutions, they've been around for a very long time. People have always been interested and deeply invested in what's going on in their own communities. What are, you know, officials, representatives, what are they doing to try to fix issues um, within their communities, within the state? So solutions journalism has been around for a while. I think that our founders just kind of came along and decided to kind of make it a more formalized network of of journalists and newsrooms in that regard and really try to put together an organized way of of expanding um, solutions journalism in terms of reporters being able to do it, connecting with editors, um, building relationships with newsrooms all across the world, because we really are a global organization. Janelle Johnson Phillips, how did you get into solutions journalism yourself? Yes, that's a great question. So, you know, my background, of course, is in journalism. I've only been with SJN for a little over a year. But prior to that, I was a healthcare reporter. I was a general assignment reporter. I've done um, communications work with a disability rights organization. So my whole thing with my journalism background at a certain point, I decided that I really wanted to focus on um, the African-American community and my storytelling. And oftentimes, 
it's an un, unrepre, underrepresented group or unrepresented group. Sometimes it's a mis, misrepresented group. And so I really wanted to embark on this journey of, of trying to do my part in order to change that. And so I think the kickoff for me was in 2014, I was working at Louisville Public Media and I, or maybe this was, yeah, 2014, I think I started working there. Yes. And I ended up um, doing this four part series about the the Heckler report. And it was a, the Heckler report came out in the 80s and it was the first report that looked at um, minority health in the United States. And so it had all of these recommendations for how to improve health outcomes. And so, you know, um, the Affordable Care Act was a new thing then. And, you know, there was some opportunity there to kind of look at how the Affordable Care Act kind of linked up with this report and if some of those recommendations were actually carried out. And I think that really was my first like foray into solutions journalism. But the funny thing is, I didn't know anything about solutions journalism. I had never heard of solutions journalism at that point. And so, you know, when we talk about solutions journalism, you know, Solutions Journalism Network didn't invent it at all. There are a lot of journalists out there who do solutions journalism or what we like to call solutions adjacent work, because maybe it doesn't hit all of the four pillars that we've outlined, but maybe it covers three of them. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. And so, yes, that project was really my first foray. And so I think myself and then like us and like a lot of other journalists, we see that there's a problem and our curiosity takes us down this road of trying to figure out, well, what's going on? Who's doing something? Why isn't something being done? If something's being done, then what is it? And how was that working out? How was that playing out for the people most affected? Um, and so I think that, you know, again, for myself, I just kind of stumbled into it. Okay. So you kind of realized that you were doing solutions journalism and then that led you to the network. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I'm wondering, um, like, how much solutions journalism journalism is out there in kind of the regular media landscape? Because I think you know, there's this very strong perception that the news is all based on if it bleeds, it leads, and that we're you know, um, as a culture, we're really interested in the the problems and the bad stuff, but that also that that's what's maybe. Uh, making it difficult to be news consumers when we're constantly confronted with these problems. So I'm wondering, I guess, is there an appetite for this journalism um, when it's maybe not exactly the lens that we're used to? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's an appetite for it. You know, um, Solutions Journalism Network has what we call a story tracker. And it's basically where we... You know, we basically just keep this system uh, of solutions journalism stories. And so journalists can submit their stories into the tracker. And sometimes, you know, people like myself and my colleagues who are working with different newsrooms and journalists on solutions journalism projects will submit the stories ourselves, you know. Um, and then sometimes we just come across those stories and we put them into our tracker. Um, and the story tracker has thousands of stories from hundreds of journalists, again, all around the world. Um, so it's not just a United States thing. It's a global thing. We want everyone to be able to come in contact with solutions journalism and to try to really make it a part of the fabric of what they do. Um, 
the news cycle does tend to be negative at times. Um, we saw a lot of news. We've seen a lot of news fatigue over the last ooh, probably decade or so. Um, I do think that and from what I've, of course, from what I've read, you know, now we have this 24 hour news cycle. You always have news at your fingertips. If you have yours, you know, your cellular device, we're always on the internet, even if you're not specifically looking for news in one way or another, you come across the news. And sometimes it's not always news that you want to see, hear, or read. Right. Hmm. And so the news what we consume has an effect on our mental and our emotional state. Um, a lot of times people are avoiding news because they are, you know, tired of the negativity. And so solutions journalism and, and research has shown, and I can talk about the research, you know, research has shown that people have a walk away after reading or listening to solutions journalism stories um, feeling feeling different than they do if they just read a problem focused story they feel more not only do they feel more informed but they feel uplifted they feel hopeful and part of that is because the story doesn't just stop at here's the problem boom and that's it. They say, here's the problem and here's what's being done about it. In 2021, we actually released some research with Smith Geiger and the research, um, it looked at six markets in the United States. They interviewed over 600 people. And basically what they found out was that solution journalism has more audience appeal. So people found the solution stories to be more interesting, more trustworthy, deep and uplifting and less upsetting than problem focused stories. Um, they also found that there was greater impact. So the solution stories changed people's understanding of issues and inspired them to get involved. And they were more likely to talk to their their friends, their family, and their peers about the solution stories um, as opposed to those problem-focused stories. Joining us today on Peace Talks Radio is Janelle Johnson-Phillips, Western Region Manager for Solutions Journalism Network. Janelle, as a journalist, how do you handle the stress and trauma of the news cycle? Because you don't really have the choice to tune it out or to ignore it, right? So how do you manage that and take care of yourself? Yeah, um, it's funny. I talk to my other journalism friends about this all of the time. And I'm going to be completely honest and transparent with you. You know, I was in the newsroom in 2021, up until February 2021. Um, and then at that point, I came to solutions journalism. And so for me, part of dealing with, or I should say coping with all that came along with being a journalist, especially in 2020, right? It was always hard. Yeah. I, I, I think that sometimes people don't always talk about how hard it is to be a journalist. It is very emotionally and mentally taxing. It is one of those professions where you are always giving your all. Um, you are always sacrificing so much of yourself, so much of your time um, in order to really help other people get the news and information that they need, right? Mm -hmm. And so... For myself, I ended up having to make the choice 
to exit the newsroom. So I'm a part of that that newsroom exodus um, in a sense where I decided I still want to be in journalism, but right now I can't be in a newsroom full time. In the last year, how I've been able to deal with being a journalist was actually to take a pause. When I was in the newsroom, there were several ways that I would cope. Um, a lot of it was when I went home, I just did not watch the news. I would just totally tune out because, you know, you sit there for eight or more hours, depending on what's going on. You have early mornings, you can have late nights. And so I just kind of had to say to myself, okay, when I go home, I, I really need to detach. I even did a, took a Pilates certification and started teaching Pilates classes <laughs> as a way hmm. to, you know, de-stress and to like put my own little spin on it. Taking time to recharge, you know, therapy, spending time with good people away from work. You know, just really having that separation between work and the personal. Coming back to solutions journalism, I'm wondering if you could give an example of um, what's a, a negative news story and how it has been or could be approached from a solutions journalism standpoint. So for folks who want to do solutions journalism or who may be new to solutions journalism and just really trying to get their their footing on this practice, I would say to utilize our Solution Journalism Network Story Tracker. Um, again, the story, the story Tracker has thousands of stories on a number of different topics. So if you go to the Story Tracker and let's say you type in um, gun violence prevention, Right. Because that's a topic. Obviously, that's that's a very tough topic to cover. One, because here lately, it seems like we're having some sort of mass shooting every other day. It, not not every other week, not every other month, every other day. There seems to be another mass shooting. And so journalists are covering those around the clock. And that becomes very it's, 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 it's stressful. It's already distressing to know that that happened. And then you have to be on the ground covering it in some shape, way or form, whether you're in the same city or on the other side of the country. So um, I just did a quick little search for gun violence prevention in the story tracker. I found a story in our tracker. Um, it's from ABC News. Um, it's entitled Lessons from a Violence Interrupter as Shootings Continue to Ravage Chicago. The story talks about how this violence interrupter model started in Chicago in 1995 and how over the last 15 years it's been adopted by major cities across the country. Marcus Mitchell was a star basketball recruit but the allure of fast cash and street life. His environment never allowed him to realize his potential. Those failures fuel his work today. I made uh, bad decisions that led me to the streets. Uh, thank God uh, I turned my life around. And now I'm in the community helping the kids not make the mistakes that I've made. Programs like these are taking shape around the country, from Baltimore to New York. President Biden. So when we're talking about something like this part could be seen as that 
insight part of a solutions journalism story where it's giving you that context it's giving you that background it's telling you that this isn't something that's just happening in chicago it's happening in other places as well and then it's going to take and then the story takes the opportunity even poses the question but has this approach worked and then it's going to take you through and answer that question for you Going to the story tracker, you will find so many examples on so many different topics, whether it's gun violence, climate change, it could be black maternal health, for instance, um, in different ways that whether it's, you know, people, communities, organizations, city officials have gone about trying to alleviate or fix that problem. And what about for regular news consumers, you know, people who just want to read more of these stories or listen to more of these stories? Uh, what would you suggest? I would suggest that they go to our website and go to that tracker because, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is most of the news that's out there is going to be problem focused news stories. It's not going to be solutions journalism. It's not going to be solutions adjacent either. It's really going to focus on the problem. There are very few newsrooms that even have solutions journalism beats. One of the newsrooms in my region that does have a solutions journalism reporter is the Arizona Daily Star. And so if people are interested in consuming solutions journalism stories, they are going to have to go to those news organizations that are making it a point to do solutions journalism stories. Going to our story tracker will give you all of the solutions journalism stories that are on our radar from around the world. You can find a link to the solutions story tracker and to the research mentioned by all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can hear Danielle's complete interviews with our guests. And it's where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, find links to other research, sign up for our podcast, order CDs, and importantly, it's where you can make a donation to keep this program going into the future. If you like what you hear, help us out at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you and also from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Thanks always to KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Danielle Price, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.